Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the Rhino Cast podcast brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the RhinoCast, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Otis Redding's smash hit, Dock of the Bay. Our special guest is none other than producer and guitarist extraordinaire, Steve Cropper. Let's get going before the tide rolls away. I'll be sitting in the evening park Watching the ships roll in Then I'll watch them roll away again yeah. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on the dock of the Watching the tide Sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Look like nothing's gonna change Everything still remains the same I can't do what ten people tell me Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. You know, it's time for another deep dive into a Rhino Records release, and I have a question for you. Yeah, shoot. Have you ever lived on a houseboat? As a matter of fact, I house sat on a houseboat in Sausalito, California for a while. 
Wow. Well, then that's going to work out well because a houseboat in the San Francisco Bay figured in a major way for today's Rhinocast featuring the 50th anniversary release of the iconic Reading Steve Cropper recording, Dock of the Bay. The song went to number one on both the pop and R&B charts and is included on the new release by Rhino, Otis Redding, Dock of the Bay Sessions, along with 11 other tracks from Otis's last recordings. Though Otis is sadly no longer with us, we do have Dock of the Bay co-writer and producer Steve Cropper here today to tell us all about it. Well then, let's get right into our conversation with the legendary Steve Cropper about the 50th anniversary release of Dock of the Bay. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Rhinocast, Steve Cropper. Hey, I'm here. Happy to be here. Thank you. The first thing is the story of your first meeting Otis while you were waiting for a Johnny Jenkins in the Pine Topper session to start is well told. But it's it's when Otis pulled up in that Cadillac that the fun begins. Would you like to take <laughs> it from there? Well, I can. And it's the same story. He was the, he was driving the Cadillac for Johnny Jenkins and Johnny was in the car. And, and he had bought the car. Johnny Jenkins was the star at that time, and Otis was just his singer. <laughs> it's hard to believe, but anyway. Ironic. So uh, Johnny, I think, didn't have a driver's license or didn't know how to drive or couldn't, so Otis did, and Otis drove the car. So we're standing out on the sidewalk smoking a cigarette or something. 30 minutes later, this Cadillac pulls up, and a big, tall guy gets out, goes to the trunk, unlocks it, starts bringing in all these microphones and stuff. And I go running down there. I said, hey, 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 hold it. We're recording here, and we have our own microphones. We don't." He was setting up like he set up for a gig. So that's what he did, you know. And that's my first meeting of Otis Redding. And then he couldn't get to me, so he bugged Al Jackson, our drummer, said, you got to hear me sing. So Al came to me up in the control room while we were listening back to one of the Johnny Jenkins tracks we'd cut. And he said, you know that guy that was driving the car that came in with Johnny? And I said, yeah, he wants you to hear him sing. And I already told him that you're the A&R guy and you hold auditions on Saturday. And he said, well, I won't be here Saturday. And he said, well, you know, maybe you'll miss your shot. I don't know. So after the session, Al comes back to me. He said, you know that guy I told you about? And I said, yeah. He said, would you please come down and listen to him and get him off of my back? The guy's driving me nuts to hear him sing. So I said, okay, Al, you know, bring him down to the piano. Guy comes down. I said, okay, play something. He says, oh, I don't play piano. I play a little guitar. He says, but I don't play piano. He said, do you play piano? And I said, no. And I said, a little bit to write with. And he said, can you give me some of them church quads? He didn't say chords. He said quads. Church quads. I knew what he meant, 6-8 triplets. And I started playing that, and he started singing, These Arms Are Mine. These arms are mine. They are lonely. Lonely and fielding in blue. These arms are mine. They My hair stood up on my arm, and I said, 
hold it, stop it. He said, well, you don't like it? I said, I know. No, I love it, but just hang there, hang tight. I went and got Jim Sturt, and I said, Jim, you got to come and hear this guy's voice. Well, he did. <laughs> we were doing these arms of mine. He said, get the band back in here. we got to put this down on tape. So Duck reminded me that I come running out of the studio on the sidewalk. He said he was putting his bass in the trunk of the car. And I said, Duck, get your bass back out. we got to cut this song real quick. <laughs> so we did, and we cut these arms of mine. The funny thing about that, with all due respect to Johnny Jenkins, who was a great player, and Johnny Jenkins played guitar on These Arms of Mine, left-handed, upside down, like Jimi Hendrix. That's the way he played. And he was coming off of a big hit, R&B hit, called Love Twist. And so we were there to get a follow-up because the guys in Atlantic and them couldn't come up with a follow-up. So they figured we could because we're a big instrumental company. So the next day, we're cutting... Another song with Otis singing to put on the flip side of these arms of mine. <laughs> so Johnny kind of got pushed by the wayside on that. I don't think we ever did come up with a hit record for Johnny. <laughs> it didn't matter. But he played on that song. A lot of people think that was me playing, but I played the piano on it and Johnny played guitar. How did the MGs come to back Otis at Monterey? Well, I think we did something with the Staxvolt tour in Europe that had never been done. And by that, what I'm saying is, Otis wanted the band that played on his records, and that was Booker T and EMGs. And I guess because we were artists within our own right, we were still the backup band. So there were a lot of gigs that were offered to tour and so forth with Booker T having the big hit Green Onions, but we weren't allowed to because we had work in the studio. So we had already done that, and uh, Atlantic knew that, and they were over there. They had representatives there, and it was a, a big event at the time, packed out, and People were there, obviously, to see Otis, but what they got, they got the Marquis, they got Booker T and the MGs, they got all these other artists, Sam and Dave, Eddie Floyd, and so forth. So it was a fantastic tour, even though we only did, I think, in a month and in about five weeks' time, we did 18 shows, I think, something like that. Dock of the Bay, and those, some of those songs had never been recorded yet, and Monterey had not happened yet. So we flew into L.A. and then caught a bus with the guys from the Electric Flag and Paul Butterfield and those guys, and we had a blast. <laughs> that must have been quite there. a bus ride. And we pull into that park where they're having that, and, and a friend of mine reminded me the other day, oh, you were listening to the Association. They played that, that afternoon, and uh, that was pretty cool. So there were a lot of people on the show, and, of course, we closed it that night, so we had a lot of waiting time. We didn't need a sound check and all that kind of stuff, just as long as the mics were working. Did you talk with Otis after the gig? Because he made such a huge impression and it was so well, successful. Yeah, during and after every gig. We knew that Otis was an international star. Problem was, we were not getting international airplay, <laughs> especially in the States. We were still getting R&B play on Otis, and we knew we had to have something that we could, cro what we called a crossover. So we knew that. You wrote a lot with Otis. What was it like to co-write with him? What I do know about Otis is he had always, constantly, in, in his career, 14 or 15 ideas, unfinished. Just intros and grooves and things like that. And so my job was to get with him, and he'd run down the things that he had, and I'd go, let's work on that one. And it'd be a, a cool groove or something. And uh, obviously there were a lot that I didn't co-write with him. And one of them I can recall was called Can't Turn You Loose. That was an afterthought. The session was over. Jim Stewart, the engineer at the time, said, that's it, boys. It's a wrap. Get out of here. Bye. See you, see you later, Otis. And Otis said, I got one more idea. 
And so he never did finish the lyrics on it. He just kept singing the same kind of lyrics over and over. Can't turn you loose. If I do, I'm going to lose my life on Yeah, yeah. So he went over and showed the horns, and they started playing something, and the band picked up on it. It's a pretty simple song. There are so many versions of how Sitting on the Dock of the Bay came to be. I'm glad I don't know any of them but one. Yeah, exactly. So how about I start with this one? Otis calling you from the airport, telling you he had the start of, quote, a hit song he wrote at Bill Graham's Boathouse in Sausalito. Let's take it from there. All right. Part of it is correct. Otis never mentioned anything about (laughs) Bill Graham or the Boathouse. But he did call me from the airport. And uh, I could tell you that I know that's where Otis started the song. And I talked about it in a book. And we're out on tour, and I think this particular time was in Europe. We were out with Neil Young. That was in 93. Booker T, DMG's Neil Young, 93. I had picks made up. So Neil comes back to our dressing room, which he never did before a gig, and he said, Cropper, I was just reading this book. I got to tell you, I stayed on that boathouse the week after Otis did. So that validated that story I've been telling for years. I always thought that Otis was talking about or singing about the Golden Gate Bridge and a sailboat going under it or something. He was not. He was on that boathouse. You couldn't even see that part of the Oakland Bay. He was looking at, out at the Oakland Bay, and he was watching ferries come in. So I had a question when he did the first verse about ships roll in, then they roll away again. I said, Otis, do you ever think if a ship rolls, it's going to take on water and sink? And he goes, no, crop, that's what I want. So then I helped him finish the rest of it, but I just accepted it. He was talking about ferries, and they do roll up a big wake when they go to park to let cars and people off, and then they roll out again. Yes, they do. So he was talking about ferries coming back and forth from Oakland to Sausalito. (laughs) It's well told that he only had the one line. So did you discuss the rest of the lyrics being kind of his autobiography? No, I just came up with stuff, and he either accepted it or didn't. That's the way we wrote. He'd say, that's good. His wife and some other people have always said that he had that song completely finished. And I said, if he did, then play me the demo of it, which I know better. They couldn't do that. I don't know why they wanted to put that in their head, but somebody did. So where did the the line, looks like nothing's going to change, everything still remains the same? That was Otis. I wrote the music to the bridge and he started singing that. And it's, you know, it makes no sense, but it worked. But it looks like nothing's going to change. People related to that. They're stuck in a rut, and they can't get out, and it looks like nothing's going to change. Yeah, you know. And he repeated it. It was weird. I mean, it's just Otis. That's the way Otis communicated, and you accepted it. (laughs) Wow. He was too big to fight with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he he had six inches on you. I never got slapped, I'll tell you that. (laughs) This is good. Anything you want, Otis, whatever you want. (laughs) Otis wrote on the guitar. Did he ever play guitar on a session? No. Not that I know of, no. And uh, Dock of the Bay was probably the only session I recall where I played the track, played acoustic guitar, and then overdubbed, because we had four track by that time, and I overdubbed the electric guitar licks, which Otis never did get to hear. That's what I was setting up to do the last time I saw Otis. And uh, I did that and figured out a way to do it. We had a big control room at Stack, so I figured out a way to do it without getting a lot of feedback. And I didn't have to have an amp and stuff in the studio. And uh, that's how a lot of frustrated guitar players wanted to be engineers. 
they never thought of getting a long cord and stretching it from the studio around. And nope, it doesn't reach. It only comes in six and eight feet. So, you know, I can't be in two places at the same time. <laughs> Star Trek hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> well, that was one of my questions. What, what led you to pick up an acoustic for that one versus your famous well, because Well, because everything that Otis wrote was written on an acoustic. And I think there's pictures of him holding that acoustic. He never had a case for it. And the thing about Otis's playing, he was tuned to a chord, an open E chord. So I got a guitar and did that. And later, I took one of my tellies and tuned it to a chord and actually performed with him tuned to a chord. It's a, it's a different sound. A lot of the licks come out different. Uh, the electric licks on Dock of the Bay was done on my standard guitar. So, But the acoustic was done open tuning. So the infamous whistling question. Okay. The, and, but I want to kind of go deeper here because what I've heard you say before is, you know, that it was obviously it was to fill in an unwritten verse. And of course it became the iconic end of the song, but he tried a bunch of different whistles and, and, and how did you know he had nailed it in one of the takes? Well, by the experience of writing with Otis, you never wrote a fade out because a lot of times we'd go in and the band would play the song that we had written and it would end at the last verse. And Otis would just start out with something else. And Al Jackson said many times, why don't we just start there and cut another song? <laughs> and we did. Can't Turn You Loose is a good example of that. I mean, it was more of a fade out than it is a song. So same thing. <clears throat> now, have you ever heard the outtakes of Dock yes. of the Bay. Yes. There's three takes, I think. Uh, one of them brings up the fact of the seagulls, and he's trying to imitate a seagull. It sounds like a dying crow. <laughs> In the record, I use real sound effects, real seagulls. And the other one was the whistling thing, and Ronnie Capone says two things, I think. He says, Cropper, can you move in a little more, or something like for the acoustic guitar. And, he, and then he said, oh, there's one thing for sure, or something like that, you'll never be a whistler. And the next take was it, and Otis whistled like he was taken over by something. He never did that again. I don't know how he did it. The number one question on Dock of the Bay was who's whistling? That's the number one question. They're not real sure if that's Otis or not. And I usually get it in my live performances because I do the whistling. I, you know, I could whistle from the time I was six years old, I guess. I don't know. So I know that melody, and I whistle it, and I whistle it pretty pure, not trying to outdo Otis or any of that. I just whistle it the way it was on the record. And people think, did you whistle on the record? <laughs> no, it was Otis. So they had never seen Otis live and whistle. I don't, you know, he passed away so he never did get to perform Dock of the Bay Live but I'm sure if he did it he would be whistling on it and the only reason that particular time that's the only time we recorded Otis that we had like a week or two to work because he, he wasn't he was getting over a throat operation still and uh, didn't have any gigs booked <laughs> like before up to that point we got Otis for one session so he'd fly in the day before, we'd ride all night long, and then record the next day, and then he was out and gone to a gig. So we never had him more than maybe two days at a time. 
And the only other time we did that, uh, Otis Blue, and we didn't get the album finished. And so Jim said, everybody leave, go eat, do your gig, and everybody get back here at 1 in the morning. And we recorded until about 11 or 12 the next day. And we knew, when I say we, everybody involved, especially Otis and myself, knew we had recorded that crossover song, and that was sitting on the dock of the bay. It wasn't finished, but it stayed in what we call the can on the shelf for a couple of weeks while we were finishing up other projects. So you overdubbed the electric guitar on the fourth open track on a Friday. Yeah. And you were going to play it for Otis on a Monday, and he left for tour as you were setting up, right? Exactly. Popped his head in the door and said, I'll see you Monday. And at the time he did that, I had no recollection or knew that Booker T and MGs had a show that Saturday. <laughs> and we couldn't get out of where we were up in Illinois on that Sunday morning. And Duck and I were sitting next to each other, looked at each other, said, we can get a hold of Dick, we could get out of here. That was Otis's pilot. So that's how convinced we were that if we were in a private plane, we'd get out of there. We wouldn't be sitting on an icy runway. Not true. And oh, I can, so you are, I can you tell you, I can tell you by experience that I know now, the way that plane went down, they couldn't see the runway because it was too fogged in. That can be documented. The rest of it is why did the plane go down? And I, I'm just putting two and two together here. I say because of Ben Colley, who survived it, said he woke up holding his pillow and everything was spinning. That tells me the wings iced up, and that Cessna did not have the buckling apparatus to get the buckling ice out. So they flew over this icy lake in the fog and iced up and spiraled down and went down in the water. That's the way I envision it. I want to go back to the waves and the seagulls. I wanted you to tell it a little deeper because didn't you call up a friend who, who wrote jingles I to did. find those sound effects? And that friend's name was Jim Gaines, <laughs> one of the hottest producers on this planet. When you were talking to Jim and you said, oh, you know what? I'm looking for a seagull and I'm looking for, you know, waves. Did you go any deeper in describing what you were looking for? Because there are different sounds, right? Well, let me regress this a little bit. We got a call from New York after... The plane had gone down and that afternoon, that Monday, and said, you guys have to get a record out. What's ready? What do you got? Got You got to get a record out on Otis Redding real quick. And I said, the only song we got that I think is a hit out of all of these sessions was Dock of the Bay, but it wasn't finished. Otis and I knew that it wasn't finished. We listened to it over and over, 100 times or more. And we knew that it needed something. And so we both agreed that it probably needed background singers. He said, man, that's it. Yeah, backgrounds would be real good. We already had the horns on there. The horns we recorded live, I think. So I said, look, when, when I'm done with you producing your stuff, I said, I've got the staple singers coming in i got to work with. I know they'd be more than happy to sing on this. He said, that's a great idea, Crop. So I'm, I, we're going to do that. And then they immediately said, you got to get something out, and there's no time to get the staple singers in to sing on it or anybody else that would do any good. And so the idea of the gulls came from Otis's idea of trying to sound like one. And I said, gulls and sea waves. So I called my friend over at a jingle company, and I'm pretty sure at the time it was still called Pepper Tanner. So I called Jim Gaines, and I said, Jim, it's Cropper. Yeah, man, what's up? I said, if you got any sound effects records over there? And he goes, that's what we do, Cropper. I said, do you have any, like, ocean waves and seagulls? He said, Yeah. So I said, I'm coming right over. And so I get over there, and he went to the vault, got whatever he got out, and played me a couple of things. And we decided on the, they had seagulls and head waves. 
And I said, can you record me some of that? And he did. And I took it back to the studio and made a loop. And put. And we had a two-track. So Dock of the Bay was actually mixed on six-track, a four-track and a two-track. On the two-track, I had the gulls on one track, the ocean waves on another one, and had them on separate faders. So when I wanted to hear that, I'd just pull it up. And I had to do trial and error on it because every time that splice goes by, you'd hear a bump or a click or something like that, even though there wasn't any drums or percussion. And so I had to start it in certain in a certain place to make sure that during the song, the three minutes of it or less or whatever it was, that when I brought up the gulls, I did bring up the, the splice. And that worked pretty good. But what I can tell you about mixing sitting on the dock of the bay, I started at 7.30 in the morning on a Tuesday and handed it to a flight attendant that was going on a plane to LaGuardia at 7.30 the next morning. And that's a total of 24 hours. So it got mastered in New York? Oh, it was mastered in New York, yeah. This is a sad song about somebody that's looking for the next thing in their life, right? Right. And yet, and yet, as sad as it is, it's so inspirational. What do you think we can all in life learn from that? Well, maybe my <laughs> definitive answer might apply because I get asked all the time, why was Stack so famous? What did you guys do down there that made you so famous? I said, we were selling energy. Oh, I like that. And they go, what? I said, energy. It's the energy on the records that's selling. To me, that's what uh, a computer takes out of a record. They take the energy out. The sounds that you got, you had two tracks, then you went to four tracks, and yet the sounds that you got... Is there some great learning that it's all about the microphones and it's really all about the engineer? I say that today that they don't, they, the guys that want to engineer, I know they don't do it the way we did it, but they also don't listen to what they're doing. Shouldn't you go out in the studio and listen to what you're trying to get rather than trying to get it with knobs on the board? So listen to the sound of whatever you're recording and find a mic that can get that sound. And I... What's his name down in New Orleans once said, well, you can do all that digital music and all that, but at the end, you don't have a performance. You have a record, you have a sound, but you don't have a performance. So Otis was always performing. There's a record called Nobody's Fault But Mine. Go listen to Otis's vocal performance on that and the music and the way we did that. And Al Jackson, it just shows everybody's uh, ability at what we were doing. We enjoyed working with Otis. All the band, he was probably one of the few artists that people couldn't wait for him to come back in the studio, the, the band, including the horns, everybody. They said, man, that Otis Redding guy is so good. Well, they always felt good about playing on his music. We treated every song as though it was going to be a number one record. After you finished the song and you played it for people, there was a mixed reaction, including Duck Dunn, who thought it didn't sound mm. R&B enough. Right. A lot of people did. What do you think it was about the song that made it so different from his earlier work? Uh, I think the medium tempo, basically. And that's probably what Duck saw because we were known for making really good dance music, solid dance music. I guess you could dance to Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, but it's more of a listening song. And as a producer and Otis, we knew we had written something that could cross over into the pop play world. And the pop play that Otis got at the time was after a song had already been almost wore out, completely a you know, monster hit on the R&B charts. And some of the 
pop disc jockeys would pick up on it because they loved the song and they'd play it. And of course, some of the, the fans of their radio show would call in and say, play that again, play that Otis Redding music. But he never really had anything that would fit as a new release for pop radio until okay. Doc of the Bay came along. And then there was backlash and whatever. People said if Otis hadn't died in the plane crash, the song would have never hit. And I've always disagreed with that. Man, we knew it was a hit two or three weeks before we ever released it. Seven million performances. Is that the current number of Dock of the Bay? Eleven. It's at eleven. <laughs> oh my wow. I've oh got that award at home in my bedroom. Eleven million plays. Eleven million performances of a song. Dock of the Bay was singular. And they rushed you to get it out as a hit. There had to be so many mixed emotions. You lose a friend, yet you believe that it was the art, not the commerce, and the tribute that pushed them to have you get it out. Is that true? Right. It was, it was sort of like mentality-wise, the show must go on, no matter how serious the problem may be. And I still to this day don't know how I did it. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Otis's legacy remains because I think you can hear his million dollar smile in the music you created together. I imagine <laughs> you see that smile every time you hear or play the song. Yep, you got it. We made good feeling music. Amen. 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 Amen with the horns now. Amen. With the rhythm now, hey. Amen. Hey, amen. Hey, amen. Hey, amen. Amen, everybody now. Amen. 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 This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Buckaroos, circle the wagons and sound the alarm. It's time for the Rhino Roundup. Hi there, this is John Hughes and Lauren G. And it's time for the Rhino Roundup, and we have a couple of special guests today joining us. We have fellow rhinos. Introduce yourself. Yeah, hi, I'm Dana. I work in business affairs. I'm Duran. I work in AR. And today we're all going to have a little roundtable about another Otis Redding release. You just heard about the Dock of the Bay, but we also put out something called the Dock of the Bay Sessions, which is 
a compilation of various songs and takes of other things that were done and just kind of posthumously released in various configurations. And now it's been assembled to make an album of what could have been. How's that for an explanation? Does that work? That's a good one. We've got things like Hard to Handle on this, right? Right. I mean, that's a great song. Of course, I didn't really know it until Black Crows did it. Right. Same. And then I realized that they weren't the originators. And then now I know that Otis did that song. Isn't it in a commercial right now? It was just uh, America's Got Talent. Oh, yeah. One of the girls blew it out of the water. Did a really fantastic job. Little on the Janis Joplin tip. I think she was. Well, if anything that introduces uh, people to that song, I think that's a really good thing. Uh, when we think of Otis, automatically the mind goes to Dock of the Bay. And is that fair? I, I think that's fair on a on a huge popular level. But then when I think of him, I think of Try a Little Tenderness. Right. That just... Pretty in Pink. Man, um, yeah. Monterey Festival, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And that performance was just... I think that just sticks in my mind. It's, when I think of soul, I think of that performance that song that man like that did it so these sessions come right off the hills of him doing monterey right right and it's interesting because uh just a personal reflection it's a hometown thing for me because the show that he was doing before he died in that tragic plane crash was based in cleveland it was a show called upbeat and he was on the flight program for that show so it was big news i wasn't there i'm far too young Obviously. It's obviously a bit of Cleveland rock history, uh, rock and soul history. And the Otis Redding Dock of the Bay Sessions is available now wherever you can grab music. So by all means, check it out. Thanks, guys. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in today. We do appreciate you spending some time with us and learning a little bit more about the music we all love. Rich, I know we asked a lot of questions today, but I have one more for you. What's that? Where can I get all the music I just heard? You can go to rhino.com. You can go to your favorite local record store. You can go to your favorite streaming service. You can go to your favorite download service. There's a lot of options. There are, and that's a good thing because I don't know about you, but I want more of that music. And last but certainly not least, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next RhinoCast. Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by Pop Cult and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved.